the book of Hebrews chapter 4. Keep your Bibles handy, we're going to be wearing them out. Hebrews chapter 4, reading from verse 1. Let us therefore fear, lest a promise being left of us entering into his rest, any of you should seem to come short of it. For unto us was the gospel preached as well as unto them. But the word preached did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in them that heard it. We are continuing our series this morning that is titled Mixed with Faith. Amen. We finished last week's lesson with this passage from a little further on in Hebrews 4, verse 12. For the word of God is quick and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, pissing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. We considered that when we mix our faith with the Word of God, we're going to be using that example, that analogy, if you like, throughout this series, that it is at this level, at the level of the thoughts and the intents of our heart, that God desires for change to take place. Now, the biggest challenge with making change in our lives is that so often we focus on outward demonstration, whereas genuine, long-lasting change happens internally and is then reflected in outward demonstration. When we mix our faith with God's Word, He wants to change us, to transform us the way that we think, the way that we respond, the way that we live, the way that we act, the way we demonstrate that we are His children. So this morning, we're going to get back to basics a little bit. I want to consider what faith is, what faith is. Hebrews 11 and 1 is the go-to verse of Scripture when we're looking for a biblical defining statement about faith. It says, now faith is the substance of things hoped for. It is the evidence of things not seen. So faith is our belief and our persuasion about the reality of something that we cannot see. It is also our expectation that our belief will produce an outcome. We believe that God can, we believe that God will. Amen. We've read from our, our foundational text, if you like, that faith is something or it has something of an activating ability when it's mixed with God's Word. The potential of the promises that are found in God's Word are realized or come into action when faith is added to the mix. That's why faith is so very, very important. But not only, not only is faith a, a, an accessing quality, or not only does faith, faith have an accessing a, a quality when it comes, or so rather an activating quality when it comes to God's Word, it also has an accessing ability when it comes to God's grace. Faith activates the Word of God, but faith accesses the grace of God. It's important that we understand that. Ephesians 2 and 8 says, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. So as the grace of God reaches for us, that grace uh, being loosely defined as the goodness of God that we are undeserving of in our own selves, as the grace of God reaches for us, our faith takes a hold of that grace. Our faith accesses 
that grace. And the truth is, the, the truth is that grace is actually incomplete without faith because it also includes in its meaning not only the unmerited or undeserved favor of God but also the thankful reception of that favor. So, so gr- faith is not only we, we access and we receive it with, with the grace of God. The good thing for us, and I guess the relieving thing this morning, is that we are not expected to provide, to create, or to manufacture our own faith. Kind of glad for that. I'm not sure how good a job I would do of that. In Romans 12 and 3, the Apostle Paul wrote and said, For I say, through the grace given unto me, to every man that is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, and then the emphasis on this slide is mine, it's not from the text, according as God has dealt to every man the measure of faith. So he is the source of grace. He is also the source of faith. And so if you did not grow up in an environment where you heard the word of God, then it would be unreasonable to expect you to mix faith with something that you haven't heard. I think we can understand that. But in our our Bible class this morning, we referred to Romans chapter 10 where it says, how can they believe in him of whom they have not heard? How can I mix faith with something I haven't even heard about? But even when we haven't heard the word of God, the grace of God reaches for our hearts and looks to provide an opportunity for us to believe in God with the faith that he has measured to us. In whatever way that happens, whatever avenue or opportunity or situation God uses to reach for you and I with his grace, at some point in that process, if we respond, it is going to lead to us hearing the word of God in some capacity, which then provides us with the opportunity to mix our faith with that word that we hear. William Vine, who wrote many, many years ago, I don't know how long ago, I should have looked it up, many years ago authored or compiled an expository dictionary of New Testament words. It's a, an excellent resource if you're into studying words in the word. He wrote that when you consider the Greek words, the Greek word that is translated into English as faith, both in its noun and verb forms, so its definition and its action forms, the main elements of faith are, and I think I've got this on a slide hopefully, a firm conviction producing a full acknowledgement of God's revelation or truth, but then that must be put together with a personal surrender to him, and then our conduct must be inspired by that surrender. So faith cannot stop with the first point. It flows if we're going to really understand what faith is. Faith is always going to be more than knowledge, which is kind of point one, but it must also bring application and demonstration. And I understand that for many of us, this is fairly fundamental and and that we repeat often, but I think to do with this series, it's important that we start here. Because knowledge is important in our relationship with God. Amen? Knowledge is important. One of the, um, what's the right word? Severe criticisms of orthodox religion in what is called the dark ages in history was that the word of God was only in Latin and could only be read by the Orthodox priesthood. The common man who was working on the farm or doing whatever they were doing didn't, was not educated, could not read Latin. And so 
that very small percentage of people that were able to read the Word of God, and, and in some cases, I believe it was even physically chained to pulpits, they could effectively tell the people, this is what it says. You've got to trust me. It would be like if we were up here and this was written in a language from, I don't know, Klingon or somewhere from outer space, and I was the only person in the building that could speak that language. I could just tell you this is what it says. Take it or leave it. And unfortunately, what that led to was an awful lot of abuse of power and authority where people created their own ideas and their own rules and basically said, oh, yes, this is what it says. You must believe me or else God will judge you. But we are so very glad today that we have the Word of God in our hands, that we can all have our own Bibles, at least in this nation. We can read it, and if we desire to, we can learn it and understand it and have knowledge of it. Now, here's the thing about once you get knowledge of the Word of God, you then become accountable to the authority of the Word of God. And, you know, to sidetrack just for a moment, one of, one of the most important principles that we can teach our children as parents is that when we know something is right, we should do it. I thought I'd get at least one amen from a parent. We, obviously, we need to backtrack and emphasize that a little bit more. But even when it's hard, when it may be uncomfortable, when it may cost us something, if it's the right thing to do, it's the right thing to do. Amen? We're living in a society that disputes the existence of truth. And so what that means is they also dispute some things that are simply right. Truth becomes edited by preferences. And the right thing to do is guided by feelings. And what this does is it produces adults, adults who don't know how to accept responsibility, who are incapable of apologizing, and who lack the resilience to go through difficulty. Honesty becomes optional. Honor and integrity are the exception rather than the rule. And good character is no longer valued or esteemed. Now, before you switch off and you think, well, I, you know, you may think I sound like an older person throwing stones at a younger generation. These things are highly valued in the Word of God, not just by grumpy old men. And the truth is, if our current generation has lost sight of the importance of these things, the liability for that falls upon those who have taught them or who have failed to teach them. So we need to be careful we don't throw stones at the generation that comes behind us because we produce them. Maybe we should repent. But as God's people, we ought to be honest, we ought to be trustworthy, we ought to be responsible, we ought to be keepers of His Word, and we ought to be people that do things simply because they are the right thing to do. Amen. That, that's, I think that's a biblical principle. But we know, again, if we're being honest, and Jesus certainly knows about us, that something simply being right doesn't always last as a sustainable reason to live a certain way. Israel knew what was right. Israel failed anyway. I know what's right. I was taught what is right, and I failed plenty of times not to do what was right. These are, things, these are some things that we know. We're talking about knowledge as a beginning point. I know that Jesus is real. I hope you do as well. I know that Jesus died for me. I know that I need to be saved from my sins. I know that without salvation, I will spend eternity without Jesus in torment and suffering. 
All of these things are true. All of these things are biblically non-negotiable. And each one of those points is a good reason to obey the Word of God. Amen? There's some pretty weighty things on that list. However, if it's going to last, if it's going to last, if you are faithfully going to walk with God for a length of time, knowledge must grow to include love. So that the reasons we do things are not simply based upon knowledge, but also because of love. The ongoing mixing of my faith with his word must be because I know that he loves me and that I love him. That's where it finds sustainability, not just in knowledge. If knowledge was enough, we wouldn't have criminals. If knowledge was enough, we would never do the wrong thing. Because you don't have to get very old before you have a basic knowledge of what's wrong and right. And yet, let's consider the world in which we live. Knowledge by itself is not enough in society, and knowledge by itself in the kingdom of God is not enough. Sustainability will come when I recognize that he loves me and that I love him. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, very famous chapter, often called the love chapter. The King James Version, the word that is used is charity, but we know that speaks of sacrificial love, the kind of love that God has and wants us to have. Verse 4, it says, Charity suffereth long and is kind. Charity envieth not, charity vaunteth not itself. It's not puffed up, does not behave itself in an unseemly fashion. It seeks not her own, is not easily provoked, thinketh no evil. Rejoices not iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. Beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, endureth all things. Now, we often read this passage at weddings. Because usually at a wedding, there are two people who are in love. Hopefully a few more in the room, but at least two. That are making a commitment to each other for life. Right? And so we read this passage. But if that commitment is going to last if they are still going to be together through all the seasons of life, here are some of the things that are on that list in the passage we just read. Love is willing to suffer. That's what it says. Love doesn't make it about itself. Love behaves the right way, not just because of knowledge. Love doesn't get upset easily. Love doesn't think evil of the other party. Love is willing to bear things. Love is willing to endure things. So my point is, knowledge by itself is not enough to get you through. It's going to take love as well as knowledge. Amen. You know, my marriage certificate is the truth and the knowledge that my wife and I are married. You know, when we got married, we went to the bank to open a joint bank account. They didn't just believe us. We had to demonstrate some sort of proof. Now, the young person working behind the teller at the bank didn't look very carefully and nearly changed my wife's name to Jacobson, which was the minister that married us. It's like, no, no, that's not her surname. But, you know, other than official things like opening a joint bank account, that piece of paper is in an envelope. I believe it's in a file somewhere at home. I don't take it out every once in a while to check if I'm married. (laughs) See if there's a little expiry date in the fine print down on the bottom right-hand corner. I don't need to examine the factual document to know that I'm married. That's done. That's done. 
Amen? But the reason my wife and I are still together and remarkably still like each other most of the time for nearly 30 years come January is because it's gone from knowledge to love as well. Because you can't just say, well, look, we're stuck together, here's the paper. It takes a little more than that to have sustainability. Amen. And in Hebrews chapter 11 and throughout church history, if you ever want to read a very sobering book, there's an old book called Fox's Book of Martyrs, which records many people throughout history who were martyred or gave their lives for the gospel. Hebrews chapter 11, particularly the later portion, records many people who were willing to lay down their lives for Jesus, who endured horrendous treatment, unimaginable suffering that most of us cannot even begin to relate to. And they are described as being people of faith. But it takes a whole lot more than knowledge to be willing to be burnt at the stake. It takes more than knowledge to refuse or deny your faith under threat of death. It's not just knowledge. I must believe in him. I must know him. And I must love him if I'm going to go the journey. You know, we rejoice and celebrate with every person that's born again of water and spirit, and so we should. But we must also remember in that picture, Hebrews 12 and 2 says, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher. Philippians 1 and 6 says, being confident of this very thing, that he which has begun a good work in you will perform it unto the day of Jesus Christ. Revelation 1 and 8, Jesus said, I am the Alpha, first letter of the Greek alphabet, and the Omega, the last letter of the Greek alphabet. So what we see in these three verses is that Jesus is the author and the finisher. He's the beginner and the performer. He's the Alpha and he's the Omega. In other words, he plans on us lasting all the way. He plans on us being there at the end. It doesn't say he's the author and then we'll see how it turns out. Or he's the beginner and if we can afford it, we'll finish the job. He plans to finish. He's already there. Amen. He plans to take us all the way. Now, we know that sin has consequences. Anybody believe that today? Sin has consequences. Sin separates humanity from God. And without salvation, that has eternal consequences. Eternity is a very long time. It's not even a time. It has eternal consequences. And there's an expression that we use maybe a little bit too lightly in churches. We ever, anybody ever heard the expression, love the sinner and hate the sin? Okay. We use that expression. It's born out of a desire to ensure that we don't be the judge of other people and that God's love, mercy, and grace reaches for every soul. And that is so true. God so loved the world. It is not our job to decide people's eternal destinies. Our job is to love souls. But we need to also avoid the imbalance that sadly a lot of Christianity has adopted where in our efforts to love the sinner, we downgrade the severity of sin. 
You know, like the law courts when they try to drop your felony down to a misdemeanor. You can't do that with God. Amen. When we accommodate sinful behaviours and lifestyles for the comfort of those who practice them, it is a terrible deception. It is a terrible deception. Yes, God is love. We know that that's what the Bible says, 1 John. God is love. But God was holy before you and I existed to be loved by God. He was holy before we even came on the scene. And holiness is his primary identifying characteristic. Holiness cannot coexist with sin. Amen. And yes, I know we are all a work in progress. Amen. And I thank God for his grace. I thank God for his long suffering. I thank God that he puts up with my mistakes and my slowness sometimes at getting what he's trying to say. We are all a work in progress, but we cannot let that become a disguise for the fact that there are some things we should simply stop doing. Amen. Amen. Jesus will always forgive a sincere, repentant heart. Always. But he does not simply look away when we sin. And we need to remember that. You know, sin sin can have consequences in this life, even when they're forgiven by the Lord. Some sins, remembering that in the sight of God, sin is sin, but in terms of how it affects us in the present, some sins, once we repent, may not seem to have an ongoing impact in our day-to-day lives. We repent, we draw a line and say, I'm not going to live that way anymore, and those things become history. There are other sins that even once we've repented can still have consequences in our day-to-day life, even though we have been forgiven. It's not a question of forgiveness. If I rob a bank, you know, before I'm saved, hopefully I wouldn't do it after I'm saved. If I rob a bank before I'm saved, Part of genuine repentance is wanting to make that right. Restitution, that's called. Now, depending on the scale or the success of my robbery, I may go to prison. That may be part of the consequence. If, if I only stole the lunch money from the bank staff room, then they may say you can pay off that debt over a period of time. And so there are ongoing consequences, even though I've been forgiven of my sins in the sight of the Lord. Eventually, I may come out of prison after my sentence is complete and possibly pay off the debt that I may owe. And so, in a certain sense, that time of that impact of that sin does come to an end. It can come to an end. But then there are other things that sometimes we deal with in life because of our sin, the sins of our past that are consequences for the rest of our life, in this life. Again, there's no, there's no blurring forgiveness here. If we've been born again, repented, we... We're righteous in the sight of the Lord. But sometimes there are broken marriages and broken families. Those things can affect us the rest of our lives. Sometimes if the Lord doesn't heal us, there can be health issues that come from substance abuse. You might have to deal with that for the rest of your life. Again, to be repetitive, your salvation is not being questioned. You've been born again. But there can be things that are, you know, have him. And you're, sometimes you're still going to deal with some stuff. Sometimes we repent, we're born again, life's still out there. Amen. You know, I was praying about this lesson, just trying to get some more direction from the Lord. 
got to thinking about this idea of short, medium and long-term consequences in the natural, not you know, just leaving eternity out of it for the moment. And you know, coming back to the fact that we're teaching about mixing our faith with the Word of God. So that's the negative. So let's flip it to the positive. There are promises in the Word of God that are short, medium, and long-term promises. Amen? There are promises in the Word of God. What do I mean by that? Well, how long does it take to repent? Genuine, sincere repentance takes moments. Once you believe what the Word of God says, how long does it take to get baptized? As long as it takes to fill the baptistry, really. You know, and while I recognize that obviously everybody's experience is different, when, when, when we're in the right place, how long does it take to receive the Holy Ghost? Some people get it very, very quickly. When you walk with God, if you, if you stumble, if you sin, how long does it take God to forgive you when you repent? Moments. Because He's a faithful God. If we have prayer for healing and the Lord decides to, to heal us, how quickly can God heal our bodies? Instantly. All of these things, mixed with the Word of God, are, or at least can be, very, very quick. Very quick. And these promises are really important because some of these are about being ready for the Lord's return. So being born again, I'm glad that doesn't require a three-month membership or a 12-month subscription or, you know, we respond to the Word of God. He can save our souls like that. Amen. Because eternity's on the line. Amen. But there are other promises and there are other principles in the Word of God that aren't fulfilled instantly. Galatians chapter 6 starting at verse 7, says, Be not deceived. God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. For he that soweth to his flesh shall reap, shall of the flesh reap corruption. But he that soweth to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. And let us not be weary in well-doing. For in due season, so in other words, after a period of time, we shall reap if we faint not. Now remember that this letter is written to people who've already tasted of the short-term promises. They're already born again. They're in the church. They've repented. They've been baptized in Jesus' name. They're filled with the Holy Ghost. But now Paul is writing to them about a principle of sowing and reaping. Or to use the language of our series of lessons about continuing to mix our faith with the Word of God and see what will come out of that. And he lets us know that if we keep our faith separate from the Word of God, we will receive corruption. That's what it says. But if we continue to mix our faith with the Word, we will receive life. Now, it's easy and not wrong to read this passage and jump to the end of the story. It's talking about eternity, and there's nothing wrong with that. It is. But, you know, corruption speaks of eternal punishment. Reaping life speaks of eternal reward. But the principle also applies to the medium term. That if we will day to day continue and not faint, not become weary continue to mix the Word of God with His promises, we will reap life in our lives. We will reap benefits of things that are only achieved by faithfulness. Let me give you a very, very simple example. It's whether we're talking about promises or principles. Proverbs chapter 22 and verse 6. Well-known verse of Scripture. Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old he will not depart from it. Now, I'm not going to get sidetracked, but this is a principle, not a guarantee. It's a principle. 
But parents, how long does it take to raise a child? When it says train up a child, is that 15 minutes one afternoon? <laughs> Every parent said, I wish. But it's a process. It's years. You know, Brother Steve's outside holding his little girl. There are other people here. You guys are on the front end of a long journey. It's, it's, it's a process. It's not a short-term promise. It's a medium to long-term promise. Amen. It requires consistency. It requires being regular. It requires an ongoing, consistent mixing of the Word of God with our faith, teaching those things in our homes, practicing the disciplines of bringing our family to the house of God, keeping some things out of our family lives and bringing some things into our family lives. That requires that we faint not. (laughs) And every parent in the building has possibly from time to time felt like fainting because they were weary with the well-doing. Amen. But if we faint not, we will reap. Amen. Amen. It doesn't, you know, that's not a... That's not a come to church for one service kind of promise. That's not a come to the altar and just get the whole package. That requires day by day, week by week, consistency, faithfulness. That's a promise that you will never see come to pass in your life if you live in the instant fulfillment area of the promises of God. Amen. We've got to stick at it. Amen. Parents, we have the incredible responsibility of trying to mix a new batch of faith and word every day maybe it's only in the very little ways they're not all signs and wonders and miracles but in the little things and by the grace of god and every parent the building needs the grace of god we will reap if we faint not now sadly there are some people who live if i can use this as an example to give you a mental picture they live in the hamster wheel of short-term promises. It's going around, you know, put it, if you ever own mice or hamsters, they, they put them in those little wheels and the poor little critter runs a thousand miles an hour and goes absolutely nowhere. I, don't, I, I had a pet mouse when I was a little boy. I don't remember it had a wheel. I do remember that it had babies and my mum said, don't take the lid off it. But my curiosity got the better of me and I took the lid off it and baby mice went all through the house everywhere. I think we were catching mice for quite a while after that. But sadly, some people live in a continuous cycle of repentance and sowing to the flesh. Repentance and sowing to the flesh. It's, it's, it's an ongoing thing. And as we've said and we'll emphasize again, God forgives our sins as he always will, when we are sincere. But if we return to living a life that reaps corruption, then we come back to God and repent again. It's a hamster wheel of short-term promises. And salvation is, is the important thing. That's the most important thing. But there's a whole bunch of promises that you will never access because you've never put one day into two and two days into a week and a week into a month and a month into a year. I'm not talking about perfection. I'm talking about not fainting. There are promises that you cannot experience without some kind of consistency. And yes, if I keep messing up and I keep coming back to the Lord and I repent sincerely, He will forgive me. But the consequences are still there. 
I don't like hamster wheels. I, you know, I grew up in church. Let me be a little bit transparent. I came into the apostolic church. Well, my mom brought me in. I didn't really come in. When I was seven years of age, I was baptized in Jesus' name when I was nine. I was filled with the Holy Ghost when I was 11. And from then, I was just the most best super young person you ever met in your life. Now, what generally happened, after that, I started high school. And I went through the five years as we did back then in Queensland of high school in this hamster wheel of knowing what was right, of coming to an altar time and time again and repenting and feeling really good for at least oh, at least an hour and a half. And then Monday would hit and I'd go back to school and do stupid again. And then be a difficult human being to live with, I'm sure. No testimony is necessary. And then the Lord would, in His grace and His mercy, reach for me again. And I go back to the altar and I repent and snot and cry and pray through to the Holy Ghost and feel really good again. But Monday comes very quickly. And I lived those years on the hamster wheel until the point where it's like, this is insane. I can't live like this. I'm going to go nuts. And I decided to do this crazy idea and actually totally forgot on Monday as well. And by the grace and mercy of God, He helps. He walks with us. He strengthens us. He lifts us up. He's not looking for superheroes. He's looking for people to say, God, if you'll help me. I'm weary, but I don't want to faint. I'm weary, but I don't want to give up, Lord. I want to keep on going. Amen. I do not want to live in the hamster wheel and never know or experience the medium-term promises that come from faithfulness because I didn't mix a batch of faith today. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 16. See if we can move this along. That he would grant you according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might by his spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that ye, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and the length and the depth and the height, and to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge, so it, it, this is you know, just smarts is not going to cut it, that you might be filled with all the fullness of God. Words in this passage like strengthened with might, rooted and grounded. They don't speak of the hamster wheel. They speak of a little bit of consistency. They don't speak about being one-dimensional. They're always going back to the start again and again, but it tells us that Jesus wants to build something in our lives that has the capacity to know and experience His love in a way that passes natural understanding. It's not just length, it's width, it's depth, and it's height. He wants to construct something. But if you and I keep blowing up the building, we start again, we go back to length. But if we will walk with him, length can become width. Two dimensions. We go down depth, we go up in height, and we help by the grace of God, to facilitate a place where he can demonstrate himself to us. To go beyond knowledge 
to know the love of Christ in a way that is not simply, yes, Jesus loves me because the Bible tells me so. It's got to be more than that. We need to be mixing faith and the word so that we can stick around long enough to experience the medium-term promises. Hebrews chapter 5, I'm moving on quickly. Hebrews 5 and 11 says, Of whom we have many things to say and hard to be uttered, seeing that you are dull of hearing. For when for the time you ought to be teachers, you have need that one teach you again, which be the first principles of the oracles of God, and are become such as have need of milk and not of strong meat. For everyone that uses milk is unskillful in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. means a baby, doesn't mean you're good looking. For strong meat belongeth to them that are of full age, even those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. I want to give you Simon's paraphrase on those verses in line with the theme of being mixed with faith. Verse 11, there are a lot of promises in this book that you are not profiting from yet because you don't want to listen. You're sowing to the flesh. Verse 12, the truth is you should really be helping others experience those promises by now, but it's not possible because you're on a hamster wheel. Verse 13, people stuck in the short-term promises haven't matured very much. It's kind of blunt. You're unskillful in the word. doesn't mean you're a theologian. It means that you're familiar. You're mixing it. Verse 14, if you're going to experience some of the length, breadth, depth, and height of what Jesus has for you, you need to develop some mixing muscles. You are exercised thereby. Don't faint. Those of you that like to cook, I don't want to be gender specific and say it's just the ladies because some men like to as well. If you've ever had to make something by hand, Sister Mandy, when you're out camping and you haven't got the mix master and you can't plug it into a tree. If you ever had to make something by hand, you should try making bread by hand. It takes a lot of muscle. And if you're not used to it, you're going to faint pretty quick. <laughs> Depends how big the bread dough is. It's all right if you're making one loaf. If you're making 20 loaves by hand, you're going to find out what pain is. I mean, why? Because you haven't been exercised thereby. Living in the short-term promises. Milk is great for babies. But guess what? Babies sleep and faint all the time. (laughs) We're not supposed to be babies. Amen. You know, the other thing that can happen is sometimes when you do mix the word with faith, you get a product that you're not sure you actually like the taste of. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 10 and 11. For they, talking about our earthly fathers, truly for a few days chastened us after their own pleasure, but he for our profit, that we might be partakers of his holiness. Now, no chastening for the present seems to be joyous. Nobody likes to be chastened, but rather it's grievous. That's why kids cry when they meet the wooden spoon. Nevertheless, afterwards it yieldeth the peaceable fruits of righteousness unto them which are what? Exercised. Thereby, it develops strength, it develops consistency, so that we then profit from it, so that we can then be partakers of his holiness. Our natural fathers chastened us, and our heavenly father will chasten us, 
because there's that word profit. When it's mixed with faith, we profit. We will reap fruit from this kind of exercise as well. Amen. Some people don't like that recipe. They want to mix the recipe over here that's all cream buns and sweet stuff. But there's some other things that are a part of it. Let me very quickly, let me talk about, let's be a little bit practical. Let's talk about temptation. Anybody ever experienced temptation? First thing we have to understand is temptation is not sin. It's not a sin to be tempted. Everybody is tempted. You know when temptation stops? When they bury you or Jesus comes. That's when temptation stops. James chapter 4 and verse 6 says, But he giveth more grace. Wherefore he saith, God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace unto the humble. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw nigh to God, and he will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Say it with me. Written to the church. Written to the church. Pride is the express lane of sin. When we are full of pride, we're in the fast lane to sinning because we're self-important, self-reliant, self-dependent. It's all about us. Amen. What does it talk about when it says we are to resist? It does not mean that we get into an arm wrestle with the devil and try to get him to tap out. That is not what resistance is. The Bible says in Ephesians chapter 6 that we wrestle not against flesh and blood. That's not an instruction to say we should wrestle. It's an instruction letting us know that that's not the thing that we're in combat with. The instruction when you read on in chapter 6 doesn't say wrestle. It says stand. And a couple of verses later it says to withstand. And that word withstand in Ephesians chapter 6 is from the same Greek word as resist is here in James chapter 4. It's talking about standing. We're not supposed to try and, you know, match the devil. When the keys to resisting in this passage in James chapter 4, humble yourself. I need Jesus. I cannot do it without him. Humble yourself. Submit yourself to God. Draw near to God. How do I do that? I take this book. I mix my faith with it again. I'm drawing near to him. Cleanse your hands. Purify your hearts and make up your mind. Stop messing about with things you shouldn't. If you want the devil to flee, you need to flee as well. The Bible says we are to flee fornication. We can just call that immorality. In the general setting, we are to flee from idolatry, things that are more important than Jesus in our lives. We are to flee from the love of money or wealth or material possessions. We are to flee from youthful lusts. It doesn't say stand and fight, it says flee. Now, when Paul wrote to Timothy and he said youthful lusts, I'm not sure that there are lusts that we are experiencing when we're young that just vanish when we get older. But when I read that passage, I felt like the Lord just tapped me on the shoulder and said, those people in the short-term promises, the babies on the milk, they're young people. They're not mature. They're the ones that are having trouble dealing with temptation. They've got to get away from those things. We've got to flee from those things. The key to temptation is Jesus. Listen to him. Draw close to him. Mix your faith with his word. And make up your mind. Don't 
be double-minded. You cannot, I don't care who you are, hang the devil, hang out with the devil and sinful practices and then somehow expect to be able to resist. That's insane. That is insane to think, and that, the problem is we deceive ourselves. We think, I'm okay, I'm mature enough, I've got this. I'm in a, I can handle this right here, this is an okay place. And then while you're not looking, you get king hit and you wonder, well, how did that happen? It happened because you were somewhere you shouldn't have been. Make up your mind. You can't do it both ways. It's not possible. It's not possible. We've got to flee. If I want him to flee from me, I've got to flee from a whole lot of things that he wants to use to trip me up. You know, how, you know it's, it's laughable to think that I can hang around with lust and hang around with idols and hang around with all these things and then say, I resist you, devil. That's... That's laughable. We've got to be able, if you're going to resist him, there's a lot of things you've got to flee from. And I've said it before and I'll say it again. Flee does not imply a slow walk away looking over your shoulder. Flee means you're getting chased by an angry dog. It means run. I never saw my son run as fast as the day I saw him get swooped by a magpie in the park across from our house. The fastest he's ever moved in his life. Because you're terrified, right? And we ought to be terrified of sin. Not in a fearful sense of being worried about being defeated, but we ought to be saying, I don't want anything to do with that. Amen. Stand with me if you would this morning. God, help us to take advantage of the short-term promises. But God, help us to put some consistency together by mixing our faith with your word. So we can start to experience the medium-term promises, the goodness of God, the fruit of, of what he wants to do in our lives, because ultimately it's about the long-term promises. Let's lift our hands and worship him. Lord, we worship you today. We 